Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of finding out that you can game anytime, any place, including the past. No cold fishes here, folks. We're going to be just eager beavers and we're just going to go through this, folks. Okay. All right. You know, slap daddy. We're going to just go ahead and do our best. Just jazz it up. So uh, we are talk. Uh, uh, we did a previous podcast about playing Bureau Thirteen in the nineteen twenties. Okay, we are following that up with playing Bureau Thirteen in the nineteen forties. So you know, don't think it's about Bureau Thirteen. It is about. Uh, it's about playing any. So uh, this. Uh, so we're talking about supernatural investigations during the 1940s, but of course, any kind of a uh, you know retro st- uh, uh, diesel punk, any other kind of thing like that, that all works just fine. Now the ones, to be fair, okay, we weren't getting them from Asia because. Uh, though they did pass a law saying we're not going to completely not have anybody of Asian descent come to America, they had like a hundred people per country per year. Yeah, um, a good book to read, and I read this many ages ago, I believe high school, which we're talking approaching 35 years. I graduated in 1987. It was written by a Catholic priest, uh, a second-generation Japanese-American. It was called Issei and Nisei, I-S-S-E-I and N-I-S-E-I. I've heard of it. Okay. It was about this man who, he was a Catholic priest. He was preaching the Word of God. He, he found the calling. They, because his parents came from Japan, he was second generation, they dropped his ass into Manzanar and other camps as, you know, what is that, quicker, what, what's that phrase? Quicker than you could say Jack Robinson. Um, they, it, it, and there were several camps, and um, Star Trek actor and activist George Takei was in those camps for a long time. Yeah, he was in more than one. They got moved. Yeah, well, because they bounced them around all throughout the Southwest. And it was all because of World War II and the action in the Pacific Theater. And, yeah, I'm going to avoid getting political here, folks. But, yeah. It's a great stain upon our country because yeah. they did not treat the Germans like that. Right. They didn't put the Germ- anybody of German descent into a... Because Germans could walk in and look like Americans. You have the the Asian skin and the epicanthic folds. You really can't hide that. So, yeah, you have... Asians are a lot more discernible. Therefore, it was easier to, quote-unquote, round them up. 
And yes, it is a dark time in our history. It is something that we should not have done. This nation reacted out of fear for doing that. And But the important thing to our story here is, is that people who are treated badly, okay, they have beliefs. They have gods. Yes. They have spirits that watch over them, and they can get angry in their stead. And so that's one of the reasons why we had things like Kappas attacking. Yeah. You know, it doesn't say where they came from. They could have come from Japan in response to the things that were happening in the internment camps. It could have, you know... Oh, no, I could see Kappa and Oni and all the other... Japanese monsters that you can even find in a Pathfinder bestiaries in one of the six. Um, let me describe Kappas real quick. Imagine the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but on their head, they have a bowl indentation in their head in which they hold water. Now, their power was if you could get them to dump that water out of their head, I believe you could control them. But other than that, they were pretty powerful monsters. But basically, the turtles, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, with a built-in water dish on their head. But they were a, a vast part of Japanese culture and mythology. So yeah, I could see the Kappa and the Oni and... Oh, what was the name of the Japanese dwarves? They had them in Oreo. Korobo, Korobokuru. Basically, Japanese-looking fantasy dwarves. Mm -hmm. And let's see, what are the other ones? Hengo Yokai, uh, Spirit Folk. Would they would? Yeah, you had so many. Yeah, they just so so many. Yeah, Japanese culture had a lot of supernatural stuff that would have come over because it's like you're imprisoning our people. They come here for a better life, and this is how you treat them. Or they're already living here. Well, yeah, and then all of a sudden our government comes up and, you know, scoops them up and dumps them in these camps like Manzanar. There were like, I think, eight. Manzanar is just the one that comes to mind for me. And often they would get shuffled and also separated. So you had, you know, three generations, four generations of families split all throughout the Southwest. And I, yeah, I could see that a bureau team could be yeah, we've got, you know, this guard killed and we need to find out what happened. And, you know, it's the old closed door mystery. There's no way that anybody could have come in, yet they, you know, we have this dead guard. And you're finding out it's creatures from Japanese, quote unquote, mythology, that they're coming in and defending their people, doing everything short of breaking them out. It's like, it would be a warning, like, keep these people locked up and this is what's going to happen, you know. And, uh, you know, and think about, you know, there's all these people, the huge disruption of their lives. They're being they're imprisoned against their will for doing nothing wrong. Very unhappy young people. As uh, I mean, he, uh, George Takei was was very young, so he didn't really understand what was happening. He thought it was actually kind of fun. He was like going to camp for years. He loved it. Well, but other people who were older realized how, that this was this was wrong and this was bad. Okay, so you have young people reaching the age of puberty in very stressful situations. And what do we know about that? What do you get when? What's that a recipe for? Oh, you're gonna have all sorts of poltergeists, latent size awakening. Yep. Oh, it's like the blood of my descendants is calling to me. Time to go answer a call. I got some yeah. wrath to to inflict. 
Well, I, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, wrath, uh, you know, uh, parental wrath that was coming down. And here they are trapped inside of a, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, in, inside of a camp. You can't like send your kid who's being too disruptive off to the farm or someplace else to cool down. You know, change a venue, get away from other people that might be bad influences. You know, you've got all this going on, and you and you got to and you got to deal with it. And so we don't know how much might have been covered up by the government that might have happened in these camps as a result of people really messing with the supernatural climate of the of this this large group of people. Uh, you know, and uh, and I'm surprised there wasn't more. In, I mean, those those are just sample instances that are listed in the Bureau Thirteen timeline. I'm sure there was lots more that the Bureau had to deal with during this period of time. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if they uh, had, you know, a team that was, whose sole job was to go around and deal with some of these instances inside of some of these camps. Oh, well, traveling, no traveling teams started, I believe, let me look here. 1910, first motorized on the road agents began to travel. So yeah, they already had traveling teams for like, 30 years. So it's like, yeah, you're just traveling because Fur just let me know privately that apparently these camps, these internment camps for Japanese Americans went all the way up into Washington state. So they were all along the West coast. See, I thought they were in like California and Nevada. It wasn't just, they actually went quite a distance East, but yeah, traveling, traveling teams, wandering teams, roving teams had already been a thing for 30 years. So there's no doubt that they probably had one or two teams going, yeah, okay, we got another problem at this camp. Check it out. Yeah, it's probably another, some Oni coming in, you know, slicing up a guard. Yeah, so they kind of got you, and, and yeah, I could see, well, I don't know, they might just have one team just because, you know, Bureau was still kind of um, far stretched because a lot of the, the actors, people who would be active agents were still overseas fighting. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And those who survived would come back afterwards and, 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 and help, you know, because, you know, those, you know, there was recovery going on, you know, I mean, like I say, the Dust Bowl was in the thirties. People were, after World War II, they're going to move out into those basically areas where land is cheap and, and, and industries are also going to move out of those areas because land is cheap and build entire you know, uh, networks. company towns, yeah, yeah company, New towns. company towns, yeah, you know, uh, with uh, houses on the hillside all made out of ticky tacky, you know, as the song goes. Probably the most famous one that we know of these company towns that were built, especially after the war, and it was the Billy Joel song, Allentown, Pennsylvania. That you had these towns made up after as the baby boom was starting. And you had them moving into these prefabricated homes made for young families, you know, to start their lives, living the American dream, you know. And so there were these towns probably all over the country, but Allentown is the most famous one. And again, Billy Joel did the song with it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to recall if there were any others. I mean, I think a lot of them were on the East Coast. Oh, West Virginia, Coal Towns. Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. I, I have another, and I will, again, compress this. 
granted, you know, the, the concept of a company town, granted, this probably would have been in the 20s or 30s. Now, this would have been my great grandpa. So my dad's dad's dad. He was the manager of a company store in a coal mining town in in South Central Pennsylvania. So he ran that store. And yeah, the entire uh, when the coal ran out, that company town went under and my great grandpa and his family, which includes my dad's dad, David Pulaski, they ended up moving to Philadelphia. They moved to the city because everything fell through. The coal ran out and so the company town died. So as these new businesses were moving out to where land is cheap, they were building company towns. Now, granted, they weren't quite the company towns where the company ran everything. It was pretty much these corporations were their own municipalities. No, it's just these businesses moved into um, civil municipalities and the towns boomed with the new business being there. Like, oh, we're going to make a shoe factory here. Well, people are going to move because they want the job in the shoe factory. The town was still a civil municipality. It wasn't a quote-unquote company town, but you had booms because, and especially after 45 with the baby boom, all these you know soldiers coming back. Well, yeah, I want a job in civilian life, and I want my wife, and you know the, the American dream we all know. The 2.4 kids... The, the white picket fence, the two-car garage, the nice house and the stuff, all that stuff. And it's because these companies were building, they weren't in the cities, they were going out to the suburbs, and yeah, we're going to put this business here and this business here, and they all sprung up, yeah. Well, like I said, you know, it makes perfect sense for a business to go out someplace where land is cheap, you know, and build houses for its workers. And uh, yeah. And uh, one of the biggest uh, industries where this was done was the auto industry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Oh, oh, yeah. As I, as I lace my fingers and crack my knuckles backward being a Detroit native. Yes. Yeah. But it wasn't, I mean, you know, you're, you actually are a fairly urban area to begin with. But I'm saying is that this stretched all the way west into those in a lot of and it wasn't just like building autos it was a lot of it was also building the parts that were used to build the autos oh no my uh, my dad uh, having retired 40 years from general motors back in 06 so he's been retired for 14 years now his final stint at general motors was at the the former livonia engine plant so they built um uh blah, 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 north star engine which I believe was either a V6 or a V8. And so, yeah, there were plants designed specifically to build just certain parts of the car. Um, now there is the former Ford Celine plant that's been outsourced by the French company Forisia. By the way, don't look that up on Urban Dictionary. You won't like the F-A-O, F-A-U-R-E-C-I-A. You didn't hear it from me. But all they build are the seats and like the inner door panels for the Ford F-150. So, yeah. Auto plants with, especially with automation kicking in after the 40s, you know, in the late 40s, car parts were specialized. They built this part, they put it on a train, they shipped it to another plant to be attached to the main component of the car. So you might have had a plant that just, okay, we're doing, you know, the bucket seats for a car. Okay, this one is making the dashboard with the speedometer and everything. This one does the axles and so on and so on. And then they would put them all together. And when you put it all together, it spells mother. Yeah, like the old song. But um, yeah, they, they 
with automation, especially do well, what, what's the old phrase? War is the greatest advancer of technology. Yeah, we already had the plants to, oh, we're making the B-2 bombers and all this, and Willow Run just ended up becoming a car plant. But that's because we already had the infrastructure built in back from 1940 when Willow Run started. They just switched over to making GM cars. The plant was later known as Hydromatic, which sadly shut down in the 90s, all that. I mean, the airport is still active, Willow Run Airport. It's sort of a cargo and freight airport, and it's where, like, sports teams land. So you might have the Pistons flight from going to, let's say, New Orleans to play the NBA team. Not a sports fan, folks. I'm just, you know, but they'll land at that Willow Run Airport, which had its start in the 40s due to Hydromatic and Willow Run Bomber Plant and all that. So, yeah, once all the war was done, we had all these plants, and it takes, what, a couple months to retool a plant to build something new? Now they usually do it during changeover. Oh, we're building this model of car. We need to retool. That would be, for those of you in the auto industry, or you had, your dad and grandpa was in the auto industry, you've heard of changeover. It usually was during the summer. Because, remember, new cars count, come out every year in September. That's usually when, if it's 2011... You're already starting to build for the 2012 model. During the summer, you had a couple of months, and I went through this with my dad. Changeover, which means my dad was off for a couple of months. And then September, he went back gangbusters, and yeah, we're building the new model of, you know, the Cadillac such and such with the V8 North Star engine, you know. So yeah, we had all that infrastructure because war is the greatest advancer of technology. The greatest, I'm on vacation. The mouth's not working right, folks. Um, during war, <laughs> during war, our greatest technological advances were made. And um, we can put this in here, Bruce, the various things that you listed here that came up during the 40s. You mean the, the, some of the new technologies? Oh, yes. Again, folks, we have another oh, yeah. patented Bruce Sheffer outline here. You know, that, that's a coin term like the plague text effect. Just deal with it. Yeah. Um, let's see. So. <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, these are things that came out in during the 40s. Aerosol spray. I mean, things like Aquanet hairspray. You know, my grandma had it. My, my now late grandmother had it there on the, the, the top of the toilet, the, that pink can. And you can thank, you know, all you ladies who had big hair in the 80s. Thank the 1940s for it. That's where that came from. Aqualung. Just the ladies. Now, wait a second. Well, don't go jumping too fast, okay? Aerosol spray. This was like a huge boon to the Bureau, who now could take babies ah, yes. and put them into yeah. small, easily stored, you know, and 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 separatable, you know, uh, containers. You could have a shelf with all these different veins that you could take out and fill uh, and fill a relatively large area with them. Uh, not like huge, but I mean, you could go to a room, spray it around with a bane and, and see the reaction by people, you know, but there, there were monsters or they could be. I could, I could, I could see the sign. I could, I could, I could see this. And we don't know if Robertson was around in the forties. I don't think so, but they probably had some tech guy going, you know what would be good here? An aerosol spray that sprayed silver. You could spray it at it. You could pull it out and spray it at a werewolf and just watch them, you know, just roar in pain. You know, get it into the eyes, you know, and just yell. 
Well, they had spray paint, aerosol spray, a spray paint, and you could put silver in spray paint. And and it's silver and silver colored. Who would know that it contains actual silver particle? Yeah, colloidal silver. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I totally forgot about the term. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and so, I mean, before that, we didn't really have any kind of, I mean, we talked about, you know, using poison gas and things like that, okay? But we didn't have other types of like, like sleep gas and uh, other types of things. You know, the, this was a big step forward being able to localize, you know, and not just basically have one thing that you could do. And it was legal, okay? You could, you know, you, I mean, at this point, carrying around, you know, poison gas could get you thrown in the, as they called it, the who's cow. The who's cow, yeah. <laughs> the, cl the clink, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly, yeah. You know, uh, up to uh, some of the more uh, uh, Rikers Island and other places. Uh, so, and, and the police were not, you know, they, they didn't know about things like, you know, Miranda rights and things like that. If they thought you were up to something, they could take you, drag you into the station and beat the living anything out of you until you gave them the answer they wanted. Oh, no, 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 folks. Yeah, we are, we are tape, tape, taping, God, I'm showing my age here, recording this in <laughs> mid-October 2020. And we all know the stuff that's gone on this year with the police. And yeah, if you think they're bad, they got away with a lot more back in the 40s. Police brutality was not the exception. It was it was the norm like we we're finding out, oh, this is coming out. Oh, my God, all this stuff horribly happening because we have, you know, body cams and car cam. No, this stuff was standard operating procedure, sadly, for policemen back in the 40s so yeah they called the backroom interrogations yeah the 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 acronym that we have now ACAB that was the standard mm. procedure SOP modus operandi of the day back then said right so you know I mean if you want justice you'd have to you either have to be rich or you'd have to be living in a more urban area where you people would see the police doing things that they shouldn't and they'd have to be a little bit more circumspect but when you were out in the in the rural areas basically a deputy sheriff could do whatever he thought was necessary for the protection of his uh, of of the people he was serving with a you know with a the the heart a heart filled with righteousness while he did it well yeah that i mean in the bureau game we have you know the the thing and i know it was in the 80s edition i forget if it was in the the ogl the small town sheriff oh yeah a lot of that started in the 40s yeah. of just the cop that you know what and and sadly a lot of them were in the south i'm not bad mouthing people from the south but you do get a lot of them down in like you know you know the hollers of west virginia and the bayous of louisiana and out out in the great plains and in small towns in california up in the believe me there's small towns in pennsylvania and new jersey and all these other places okay oh no i i i know you come from pittsburgh and i have friend, dear friends um Bureau 13 OGO. Team Cavalier comes from Pittsburgh. So yeah, I've seen the little towns down there in the Hollers and the Alleghenies. They had them type of sheriffs there where uh, uh, sadly, they were all three at one time. You know, judge, jury. Well, I wouldn't say judge, jury, and executioner, but they 
exercise a lot of leeway in how they police their and and they weren't entirely wrong either because you know they had there was something else that was going on in especially in the southwest called gangsters yeah yeah see here see yeah yeah al capone had spawned a whole new generation okay of 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 gangsters Oh yeah, Bug, Bugsy Malone and yeah. I mean the, the the Bonnie and Clyde, all that happened. Okay, you know because of that, and so there, you know, crime was even though you know prohibition was over, you know they were uh, uh, they were trying to build a, a huge crime empire there in Las Vegas. Well, they they built all their power because of prohibition. Right. And then after prohibition ended, they just turned to other interests. Right. And so but they'd they, already that um, um what's the term? The infrastructure was already there due to prohibition right. in the 30s. So I'm saying is is that you know, if you were a small town sheriff or whatever, you know, you you saw a bunch of people who were strangers coming in with vehicles and such, it wouldn't be a hard stretch for them to think that maybe you might be gangsters planning some kind of a job. Maybe you're going to hit a gold shipment. Maybe you're going to hit a train. Maybe you're going to hit a government convoy. You know, especially as we got into World War II and people were looking for people to do things like that. Foreign saboteurs. It was very easy for the Bureau agents to find themselves mis, uh, uh, misidentified as a, as a foreign uh, insurgent. Oh, yeah. You had, and there was a term, again, this is another term that a lot of you might not know, the term fifth columnists. Basically, Nazi sympathizers. Mm -hmm. You had a lot of them here in America, and I believe the term was F and A. F and A. Fomenting and agitating. In other words, they were <clears throat> starting fecal matter. Well, they were starting stuff. Yes, right. They yeah, were starting yeah. stuff. And so, so you had the one of the big things that you could do a Bureau 13 game in the 1940s. And I, I was talking with her about this as I left her place to go back to work. There is a group that is out there, and I am surprised, Mr. Shepard, you didn't put that on here. The Thule Society, the German branch of Hitler's Third Reich that was trying, because Hitler in real life was a huge fan of the supernatural. And that is the reason why we have stories like Hellboy and whatnot. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Exactly. That's another one. Yes, thank you. And so you could have an entire bureau campaign of fifth columnist and Thule Society members trying to start stuff using the supernatural to try and gain an edge to weaken the arsenal of democracy as you stand there proudly arms akimbo with a non-existent breeze blowing, you know. But, yeah, that would be a good thing. And that was something I brought up, the Fool Society. And I'm thinking, oh, if we don't bring that up, that would be just, yeah. And that would be a really good, and here's the thing. In the, thir in the late 30s, early 40s, folks, if you're doing a role-playing game and it's any type, use Nazis. You will never, you know, you will never have someone go. You got it. No, I'm kind of, yeah, yeah. I'm, you got it. You're never going yeah. to have your players going, you know, I'm really, you know, getting bored with the Nazi storyline. No, folks, always punch the Nazis. Just And in Bureau 13, you get to do it <laughs> en masse. 
And don't be just jackbooted guys. Don't forget about the Nazi Freuleins who were the the uh, the German Mataharis, you know? Yeah, kind of like, um, and oh, let's yeah. see, in Indiana Jones, Dr. Elsa Schneider, played by Allison mm-hmm. Duty. Yeah, she, yeah, that's the perfect example of the 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 calculating Nazi woman, female criminal mastermind. I mean, she was an archaeologist, and yeah, so, I mean, you could have somebody like that, just, you know, Ava Braun, yeah, she was just Hitler's girlfriend and all that, no, like, Characters like Dr. Schneider, yeah, you can have, you know, and, and yeah, it's the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan, yeah. But still. They weren't, they didn't all look like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There yeah, were plenty well, of brunettes. Yeah. There were plenty of people of uh, yeah, more swarthy yeah. uh, characteristics because, you know, the Carpathians were swarthy people too, you know. Anyways, uh, so let's move on to other to some of the other cool gadgets that came into existence in the 1950s. 40s. Okay, uh, Aqualung, and not necessarily the the Jethro Tull song. Um, <laughs> hi, I run. I have the Trabcast. I'm going to make the musical joke. Right. Tell tell us about what it is. What is an Aqualung? Aqualung. Um, no, that's an okay. That's an Ireland. No, uh, I believe diving equipment. You're not having to wear the big bulky suit with the the massive round helmet with the cage on front. You actually could wear it on your back and have an air supply. Yeah. The air tubes going off to a compressor up on the surface. It was called scoop. It was the anacronym was scuba. Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Exactly. Invented by Jacques Cousteau. Yes. A Frenchman. Me, me and the crew of the Calypso will be there. Okay. That was much later. But the point was is that you now had the means of traveling down 300 feet underwater, okay, uh, far greater than people were doing in those days with compressors, uh, and go and that was a whole world of the supernatural that was suddenly now exposed to investigation and incursion by service dwellers. So a whole, you know, you you could have a whole campaign of pro, of issues coming up on on the uh, you know. Uh, on the east or the west coast, uh, because of that, I ran an adventure, you know, that was all about mermaids and uh, an undersea kingdom and creatures like gi- gigantic, you know, crayfish and things like that coming up out of the water because one of their members decided to come up on land to escape having to do a forced marriage. Ah. But and I'm saying is that you know those those places were a mere 300 feet underwater, very less than a mile offshore, you know, before the drop off, you know, of the continental shelf. People didn't know what was underwater. They didn't know what was down there until the aqualung was developed. And then people, you know, and then as people started going down there, they started putting cameras. You know, uh, well, they didn't have, you know, the, the, the color television was invented, but they certainly had no underwater cameras at that time. So, you know, there were uh, some amazing things that were discovered just off the coast. Shipwrecks uh, with their attendant ghostly crews, uh, you know, various uh, things that were being uh, 
mutated from not radiation, but just from all the non-regulated uh, industrial chemicals that were being, you know, with mercury and other things like that, that were being dumped just far enough offshore that it didn't cause any problems with the local water supply. I, I just was remember, reminded of something else about World War II and sea-based stuff. Um, and this was mentioned in the Suicide Squad movie. During World War II, the United States government actually made a deal with the mafia to watch the ports and, like, New York Harbor to make sure stuff wasn't coming in there. That's another thing. It, just, it, it ties in sort of semi-into-the-sea thing, but it reminded of that. So you could have stuff being brought in on ships like they're smuggling in artifacts or they're... Um, could be something from, you know, from the old country, you know. And so that's another thing, ta Bruce talking about sea-based adventures in the 40s. That's another little thing to add. And it reminded me, I remember Viola Davis's Amanda Waller mentioning that to Rick Flagg. Anyways. Right. There's a lot of stuff that basically during the chaos at the end of World War II got shipped to the United States that shouldn't have been shipped. Like Nazis, Nazi war criminals fleeing, yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that was... That was South America. Never Supernatural mind. artifacts, especially gold-covered ones. People are like, this covered with gold. We're going to take it. Uh, it's, you know, something written here in, you know, in Persian or, or Jew, you know, or, uh, you know. Hebrew. Hebrew script and so like that. I can't read it. But, you know, I, there's, there's, I recognize that symbol means danger. It's just, you know, it's just a, a, like a violin thing. It's, or a big long stick, but it's covered with gold. So we're going to take it. Yeah. Things came to America that shouldn't. People, uh, very supernaturals flee to America, you know, at, uh, because of the, re of the devastation, you know. I mean, they bombed Europe, yeah. whole swaths of Europe to the point where there's still areas of Europe, especially France, where people can't go in because of all the unexploded mines that are still there 100 years later. So anyways, uh, let's move on to the first real computers. Uh, yeah, granted they were the size of probably my apartment here. No, 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 they were, they were the size of... Uh, well, they were a size of a modern range. Oh, no, they were the ones that were the size of a building, or like at least a room in a building, I remember. Right, but those but those were ones, yeah, but those were ones that were used for government work. And the, you know, they, but I'm saying, but they had smaller ones that were used for information processing and records, you know, and record storage and things like that. Government and universities probably have yeah, them, yeah. But that, I mean, the really big ones were like doing computing, you know, like actually, pro, you know, not just that. So... You know, this was the first time that the Bureau had an opportunity to take all of the information that they had been storing in files with card catalogs and referenced by who knows how many librarians, okay, <laughs> in, in, the, in, in, uh, in Carson City in Washington, D.C., and actually start putting... Card catalogs, the original Google folks. Yeah, and start putting them actually onto media you know, that could, was a more more easily stored and was more covert, but also could be could be searched more in some cases more easily. You could actually go and say, look, you know, here's this huge thing that represents thousands and thousands of documents. Okay, search it now for these phrases. 
and they could actually do that using nine inch, you know, nine track tape and and things like that. You know, those big reels. That was never possible before. But this is now the first time that that's actually possible. You would have to get a psychic or somebody with dowsing to go and say, "Go find me this document. Where is it?" <laughs> you know, because. Oh God, what was it? Um, a good way to imagine those type of computers. Uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, that type of computer would be something from the 40s that would be, uh, if you remember when Steve and Natasha were in the building and Armin Zola, played by Toby Jones, was there on the computer screen. Right. And basically telling er telling Steve and Natasha, yeah, everything you thought was wrong. Hydra's been here all along and yeah, we were fully in the shield. That's the type of, that's a good example of the type of computer was in the 40s. And they managed to adapt it for a USB plug. That was the thing. I'm just like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. And of course, there were atomic, especially after the after the war, there were there was the possibility of atomic bombs being used against the supernatural. Yep. They were bombing yeah. other parts of the United States at that time, testing weapons. Maybe something happened. Maybe there was a big colony of ants that needed a nuke. Okay, it's it could happen. And those nukes, you know, like I say, the the uh, the ones that land uh, were dropped in Nagasaki. I mean, they they weren't that big. Oh no, Fat Man and Little Boy. No, they were not. Well, I mean, you couldn't carry them in your pocket, but I mean, no. They couldn't, but the, no, they were not Snoopies, okay? They were not briefcase nukes. But the point was that you could carry it on in the back of a truck, okay? And you could take it someplace and set it off. So, yeah, you know, and a little boy, yeah. You could drive it into that uh, that coal, that uh, coal mine that nobody used anymore because people had gone to petroleum and, and natural gas for all their power and heating needs and cooking needs. And uh, that place had gotten overrun by mole people, okay? It's, I mean, it, you, know, you drive in there and close it off. I mean, yeah. it can ha I mean, these things could happen as part of your adventures because they were available. You know, it's not clear how the, you know, the Bureau and the government interacted in those days. But you can assume that there was the possibility that if there was a great enough need, the government or somebody in the government would allow a, a device to, to, to be released to the Bureau because national, it wasn't because literally the, uh, uh, as I did in, in the, in the, uh, the, the, the Bureau rules, uh, the, stability the the continuance of the united states was in question so they would, they're willing to nuke when that happens so it's uh, it's not a small thing uh but anyways they unscheduled test yeah they're unscheduled test or you know and of course if it was done underground all oh, so much the better right okay so uh uh we're gonna try this new theory called fracking uh now yeah <laughs> You know, now uh, there were phone lines, you know, pretty much everywhere along major hot, major, well, major roads as in two lane roads and, uh, and, and cities and towns and things like that. So, but what they didn't have really until then was uh, mobile phones. 
there actually was mobile phones created in the 1940s. Now, ah. they were the 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 phone was the the thing that was attached to was the size of a coffee table, and it could give you second degree burns. Oh, gee. <laughs> after you turned it on, okay, and I know this from somebody who actually had experience with this. He says, but they did exist. You could make a phone call from a remote location, and it you know if you had a, a receiver. You know, it, you know, next to some place where you could actually plug into the phone lines, the real phone lines, you could actually, actually make a mobile phone call in those days. So you could actually call the president or actually call the bureau and talk to somebody. Now, you know, they did again shortwave radio uh, over encrypted lines using, um, especially using encrypted um, uh, Morse code. Uh, they also had um, uh, uh, encrypted facsimile transmissions. That was a, one of the data transfer things where they would actually you, you build basically up a fax. Faxes have existed since the eighteen since the nineteen uh, hundreds. You know the uh, uh, the early uh, in the late eighteen hundreds they've existed. So you know uh, sending this uh, this kind of information was. You know, they, they came up with more commercial where they were selling them to businesses like like everybody, but they existed in prototypes and things like that, and of course non-standard. So you could transmit information. What they didn't have is they is they didn't have color transfer until actually they did, uh, but it was uh, not widely spread. Uh, but the point was that you could send a picture of a supernatural or somebody who was a cultist. You could send their picture to agents. Uh, you know, you could actually get ahead of people sometimes and not have to get up in a plane and fl and, and take off from a cornfield and fly try to get ahead of them by flying or driving like a bat out of hell in one of those Bureau 13 speedsters, okay, over those, uh, uh, those pitted uh, grass covered roads that passed as highways in the 1940s, especially out in the western part. So anything that, that the Bureau could use to get, inform to, to, to get information to people who needed it, to get ahead of the game, to send warnings, and to get the word out, uh, especially if you were a team going in investigating, if you got killed, nobody knew what happened to you. But this was, but they were finally able to have more and more effective ways of sending information out to be recorded by uh, listeners uh, who might record, like you know, uh, make reports, even though the agents themselves are supposed to be doing that. But stuff like that, and so the next group that go in would have more information, and wouldn't be, it wouldn't just be a repeat of the previous investigation where everybody ends up dead. Or worse, you know, brought into the fold, so to speak, of the witch willow coven. <laughs> those the, the the western offshoots or the central plains offshoots, because they're they they're everyone thinks of them as being a a uh, New England group because there's the thirteen willow families, but it doesn't mean that they were all there and nowhere else in the country. So uh, franchises, you yep. gotta have your franchise. So Jonathan, tell us about microwaves. Well, I mean, we had them. They are the basis of the radar we were using uh, during World War II. Um, 
Yeah, it, it, if I remember correctly, there was a, a sort of anecdotal uh, story that we figured out we could use them in, uh, to cook food when some uh, soldier was standing in front of the, the radar dish and noticed melted that the his candy bar in his yeah. pants yeah, had melted yeah. in his pants. So, so they, yeah, we had microwave ovens. That was actually a commercial product in the 1940s. And, uh, and because of that, there were, and as you mentioned, it was possible to make a microwave weapon and use and actually do that. You actually had early beam weapons without having to do the whole time slip, alien, alien artifact kind of thing. They actually had something that you could use uh, surreptitiously. I mean, if you knew that inside that room was nothing but, you know, uh, zombies or uh, some other monstrosity that had to be eliminated, you could pull up a truck and just open and just crank out a big microwave transmitter and just hose that building. And, you know, there would be a lot of screeching and popping and sizzling, but it wouldn't, the building wouldn't catch on fire. And yeah. Nobody, a street over, nobody would know the difference. They would just come back later and say, what happened to these poor, these poor people or these poor animals? Somebody brought in a bunch of livestock and did something terrible to them. Nobody would know. It was one of the first really, I mean, outside of the poison gas and things like that and Bane weapons where you know, literally would make the monsters go pop, uh, this was one of the first uh, weapons we had that that was like in a sense it was an it was a neutron weapon. It affected living tissue, but didn't affect structures and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So the bureau had another thing in their pocket that, and I'm surprised. I mean, I I played I've run Bureau 13 campaigns now for many decades, and nobody has ever said, "Hey, can we build a microwave device and use it against?" Something. No one has ever asked me if they could do that. But uh, I'm telling you that back in those days, if you were up against a, 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 a herd of uh, of uh, were cattle, uh, it might be the it might be the thing to do. It might not kill them, but it would definitely slow them down. Yeah. And of course, if it's you know, and and, and you know, you, you could could even make a profit. You know, just shipping it to the local slaughterhouse. <laughs> There we I go. Just, yeah, I was just thinking about walking and steak. It, and, and I'm going to do this. And I know there's someone listening that won't like me doing this. It's pre-cooked for your pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, it all depends on how you're handling your wares. Do they always turn back to their human form, or are they? Could they be a? Could they actually be a wear cattle where it's a cattle that's turned into a wear form, like you know, and and now they've turned back, but they're dead and they're cooked. So, you know, hey, it's, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, some, uh, some of the uh, early chains of, of, of fast foods came into being uh, in the 1940s. And I just got to think that maybe there was an incident involved that said people said, you know, we have so much of this stuff. We should like make a, a business that does nothing but serve it. All right. So, um, jukeboxes. How could jukeboxes be used in the 19, uh, used for the Bureau or in a supernatural investigation? Because they were invented in the 1940s. 
Yeah. The one, the one thing that comes to my mind is a way of hiding information for agents. Should you or your IM team decide to accept this mission? <laughs> exactly. You go, go, to, ah, go to this banner, press, and, you know, select song B13. B13 on the jukebox. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that was, that was right there in front of me, and I never saw it. Good job, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, usually it's some song that nobody wants or it's listed as, you know, empty. There's no disc there, but... Uh, yeah, if if you if you pay your, you know, nickel and you hit B thirteen, your message is played or a door opens up. It could be also used for you know hiding uh, supply caches and stuff like that. Right. But if you're using it just as a jukebox, then yeah, you just message. I you know and uh, and and the and the record could destroy itself at the end, hopefully without destroying the entire jukebox. <laughs> oh yeah. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Yeah. During the 1940s and later, two-thirds of all the music that was produced in the United States could be found on a jukebox. That's how widespread they were and how much they were hooked into the musical uh, entertainment industry. Now, uh, as far as uh, uh, emergency trail rations, M&Ms were invented in the, oh. <laughs> in the 1940s. Originally, the, they were made uh, as products to be used against Rommel. Uh, they were designed to as a way of keeping chocolate from becoming unmanageable in high temperature desert environments. Okay. But afterwards they said, why don't we just like reduce the size of these things? And they made M&Ms and people literally had food or snacks or things like that, trail rations, uh, outdoorsman kind of people. They had stuff that you could have and it would literally would not melt on you the way normal chocolate and other things could do. So you can't, I, I gotta, I gotta think that that, you know, was probably a, it was the first time. When these first come out and they're not maybe widely known that the existence of these is not widely known. I wonder how many agents fed them to aware wolf or aware hound thinking, well, you know, chocolate hurts dog. Hey, I I I want to. I wonder how many wares got, you know, how, how many supernatural got absolutely spooked when the first time someone fed them pop rocks. Oh, <laughs> granted, that would be in a possible future episode, Bureau Thirteen in the eighties. Yeah. Yes, but I'm saying <laughs> yeah. there are there are people today who have no idea what pop rocks are, and believe me, the first time someone threw some pop rocks in my mouth, I just stood there with this you know, s eating grin on my face because it was the weirdest sensation I'd ever had in my mouth before. And yes, there is the urban legend that Mikey from the Light commercials died because he put Pop Rocks and Pepsi in his mouth. Yes, we all yeah. know this one. He's alive and well. Let it go. Yeah. Mythbusters already disproved it. Yeah, yeah. But still, just... Um, let's see, what else do we have? Frozen foods were created in... The forties. Yeah, they became they became commercially available. Yeah, well, that led to TV dinners and electrification, freezers. People actually had places to put food and freeze it. <laughs> yeah, but so that led to you know TV dinners in the fifties where you could just put it in the oven and you could have a complete dinner and a you know a tin boil tray. You know, yeah, that that. Yeah, but frozen foods. Remember, what did we have to do to preserve our food back in the day? I mean, back in the 20 teens, 20s, and 30s, we had ice boxes where you literally had an ice man come, 
with a big block of ice every day with these massive tongs and you put it in this wood cabinet underneath and the cold would radiate up and keep your, that was what we had for refrigeration back in the. You'd put your food around it primarily, you know, to keep yeah, it cold. Yeah. And then you'd put things you wanted cool underneath it because the cold air would flow down. So you'd keep your milk fresh and, 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 and uh, your butter from running, <laughs> other things like that. My late grandma's house had a milk chute. Yeah. So these are the type. Yeah. Um, you had milkmen and you had to keep your milk cold. So, yeah, you would icebox it. But once elect electri electricity was available, yeah, you could freeze food and you could freeze chicken and meat and vegetables. And, you know, you could buy cheap. You could buy, you, you know, you could buy when things were readily available, freeze it and eat it later. And therefore it was more economical. Yeah, because remember, I mean, you were shopping every day. You went to the market and bought your food for the day maybe two days because it wouldn't last that long because you didn't have refrigeration. Now, yeah, it's like everybody has a freezer. There are some people that have, you know, the, the deep, the chest freezers, like down in the basement that, you know, can hold like a whole side of beef or whatever. You know? Well, you know, I, I usually will buy like, you know, after Thanksgiving when turkeys are really cheap, I'll usually buy like two turkeys and then we'll two times during the year we'll pull that thing out, let it thaw. Because they were I always get them frozen. I've never gotten fresh turkeys. So they thaw out, cook them in the oven. Hey, it's 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 uh Thanksgiving in July, you know. And uh and the and believe me, it's a lot cheaper than buying sliced uh uh turkey at the deli. Yeah. Well, let's see what else here. Something else that, that really, you know, changed things culturally, bikinis and pants for women. Because remember, you know, back in the day, the swimsuits that, that people had, especially for, they were like full body suits, head to toe. You may have, you know, the arms may have went down to the elbow, but they were all one piece body suits. And all of a sudden you got these two piece bikinis that let, that let the mid left that mid riff be bare yeah and yeah that was a big cultural thing and of course pants for women you wore a dress that was it end of discussion all of a sudden women are now wearing pants and slacks that was a big cultural thing well they were wearing pants in the 40s probably because you know wearing a skirt in a factory would be it's a safety hazard you don't want to yeah. be walking near machinery and your skirt blowing by and that that gets caught remember i work in a warehouse still when that conveyor's on, you can't be walking by a running conveyor with a skirt on. That thing will get caught up in the gears. So, yeah, the fact that they had to make pants for women to wear in the factories in the 40s while the men were off at war, you know, Rosie the Riveter, she didn't have a skirt on. So women started wearing pants, and that became more of a thing. So, yeah. Yeah, but it was it was the beginning of the great, uh, you know, moral decline of America. The skirts were already almost up to the knees, and here they're now coming down from the waist. We can see belly buttons. That's, that's, that's the devil's country. <laughs> Settle down there, uh, Kathy Bates from The Water Boy. It, <laughs> yeah, bikinis, uh, the devil. Yeah, like foosball. Yeah, right. Um, let's see, what else? Color television. Yeah, 40s? Well, I didn't it, think color television came out until the 50s, man. Well, it didn't come out commercially again. It was invented. Oh, okay, yeah. Just like they really didn't have like commercial television of any kind until the 50s. Yeah. 
let's see here, a fax machine called a Pantelegraph? Really? Yeah, that the, the Pantelegraph was the one that was actually in color. So that's why I listed it there. But yes. Wow. They, they were in use, but they weren't commercially in use as in like everybody go buy it. But And they were acoustical, of course, not digital. You had to like put it up to a head handset and it would send the, the total signals to another fax machine on the other end that was from the same manufacturer because otherwise they were completely on you know, the standards were completely incompatible with each other. But you could, as I said, you could send pictures of things. You could uh, text, you know, documents, whatever you, you, you could come up with. You know, somebody make a sketch of something, you could run it through. It was so much faster a way of, uh, of, of transmitting it, you know. Um, and it would work over telephone lines. So they were more, that in a lot of cases, they were more reliable than shortwave radio, which, of course, was based on, would be affected by atmospherics. But uh, I don't know, I don't know what the bandwidth or anything like that, the throughput, the bit rate, any of that stuff, but I just know that they had fax machines back then, which combined with shortwave radio and shortwave radio digital, digital channels, revolutionized long-distance communication of bureau agents and back to the main, you know, the, the offices, the regional, the, the, the Carson City and, and, the, and the Washington, D.C. And D.C., yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was probably, to them, it was like a brand new age. I mean, they were like, you know, pretty soon we'll be sending messages to the moon, you know, and stuff like that. Because... Because they, things like Flash Gordon and other things like that, those were serials that were on come in the theaters coming out. They, they, they thought the space travel was just around the corner, and of course, all the attendant horrors of space vampires and space this and space that. You know, so the bureau, I'm sure, was having long sleepless nights thinking about when we when they finally breach the upper atmosphere and go out and uh, go to the moon. Who knows what they're going to bring back? They could bring back moon rocks can you imagine entire states turning into werewolves you know because of lunacy and stuff like that or people just going crazy i'm sure the bureau was just having all kinds of of, of nightmarish dreams as a result of that well the, the 1940s is also where and this is something i think we will have to talk about and maybe in another episode in, in more detail but 1947 was when Roswell incident happened. The the crash at Roswell. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. we we uh, you know we, we didn't really talk, haven't talked about the lights in the sky, the lights in the swamp, and uh, the various strange visitations that people were beginning to see more and more of, and uh, and and that's will have to be something for us to talk about in another episode. But we'll have more for you, you know, uh, next week. So until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast.
Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.